Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. My name is Dr. Casey Patrick. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Today, I'm lucky to have joining me Dr. Nick Moore. Uh, he's an associate professor of emergency medicine and critical care at the University of Iowa. Nick and I attended Indiana University Emergency Medicine Residency together, and Nick has gone on to some pretty impressive and exciting research uh, in the world of emergency department ventilator settings. And some of those principles that Nick has delved into, we've actually applied here at MCHD, and you've heard on on a prior podcast, myself and Jordan Anderson, Anderson discussed these things. What I wanted to do was kind of get Nick's perspective as someone who's been involved in the ground level sort of uh, basic research, looking at these principles and kind of hear his perspective. So just to start out, Nick, vent management is often thought of as an ICU problem by paramedics and emergency docs, really. Tell us why our pre-hospital ventilator management decisions matter more than we may think? Yeah, Casey, that's a great question. I think that one of the things that we're learning about ventilator management is that that early period right after intubation is a really vulnerable period for our patients. There are a lot of reasons for that. We know that that's when uh, the inflammatory cascade might be amped up the most, that we know that the lungs previously in many of these patients are not injured, but that first hour or several hours is a really vulnerable period. The other reason that it matters is because we know that the people who care for our patients after we do look at what we did and in many cases just continue that. So in a, in a series of our studies, we've called that therapeutic momentum. But what we've shown is that in when patients are ventilated in the pre-hospital environment, when people show up in the emergency department, in many cases, those same ventilator settings are continued in the emergency department for the hours of evaluation in the emergency department until they show up in an intensive care unit. And to tell you the truth, the same thing happens in the ICU, that many patients, when they show up in the intensive care unit, if it seemed like they were doing okay in the emergency department, those same ventilator settings are continued. And so I think that we've learned that if we choose a non-protective ventilator strategy someplace early in the care of our patients, that that non-protective strategy can be continued for hours or even days. And that's when I think we see that the effects of our ventilator management strategy influence outcomes. So a couple of points I want to I pick out of there. I want to start with the, one of the first things that you said, and I think it's something that you know, we as emergency providers don't, or I don't think I was really taught to, to think of it this way. And I think, you know, definitely some of our paramedics aren't either. But, you know, the ventilator in and of itself um, can have, you know, negative effects patient care-wise. And a lot of the patients that we innovate, especially in the pre-hospital setting, the lungs are normal before the ET tubes pass through the vocal cords. And so that act of positive pressure in and of itself um, is going to have side effects. And so just talk a little bit more about, again, I... The patient that I always think of in this in this um, you know this scenario that is probably the most common one that we deal with is the isolated head injured patient. You know the young, 20, 30 year old male that that gets hit in the head with a baseball bat or falls from a ladder. You know those those lungs are normal, correct? And we're introducing uh, a necessary uh, modality of care, but that but that that tube and that and that ventilator can introduce problems, correct? Yeah, that's right, Casey. That's a really good point. The when we think of mechanical ventilation, we're thinking of positive pressure ventilation, and none of our patients 
live their lives on positive pressure ventilation unless they've had some prior condition that requires it. So uh, this is a non-physiologic way of ventilating all of our patients. Even our patients who have hypoxemic respiratory failure have a heterogeneous lung disease. So if we think about our patients with pneumonia, for instance, there are sections of the lung that are relatively normal and there are sections of the lung that are diseased. So when we think of how we're going to ventilate those patients, how we're going to select our tidal volumes and our PEEP, how we're going to think about driving pressure, what we're thinking about is how are we going to overcome that hypoxemic respiratory failure, which in many cases can be attributable to a small portion of the lung. But the truth is that when we select that tidal volume, that tidal volume is distending all of the normal lung. And as that heterogeneous lung injury gets larger and larger, that's when we start to see that what we thought was a normal tidal volume or what we thought was a safe tidal volume is now being delivered to a smaller and smaller portion of normal lung. And that's when we start to establish barotrauma. That's when we start to develop biotrauma. And the inflammatory cascade of ARDS starts to take over. So as we start to think about ARDS and lung injury, I think it's important that we think of that as the consequence of ventilating a heterogeneously injured lung as if it were homogeneously injured. You're right that there are patients who we ventilate with overdoses and with brain injuries and other things where their lungs aren't damaged before we start. And some of those conditions can predispose them to ARDS just by virtue of the fact that they're really sick. But whether our patients have lung injuries or not when we start, uh, I would encourage us to start to think of lung injury really as an iatrogenic complication of critical illness, something that in some cases can be prevented and actually in many cases can be prevented. And I think that the totality of the medical literature up to this point really supports that idea that ventilating patients with lower distending pressures, smaller tidal volumes, even things like avoiding blood transfusions uh, that don't have as much to do just with mechanical ventilation strategy, all of those things can decrease the proportion of our patients that go on to develop really significant lung injuries, that go on to develop ARDS, and really that go on to develop multi-system organ failure and death as a complication of the reason that they got intubated. So just for a quick quick review for the listeners out, of there, out there who may not have caught the first uh, or initial lung protective ventilation uh, podcast, here at MCHD, we've initiated protocol that really involves more of a lung protective bundle for our, for our ventilated patients. And we ventilate with uh, tidal volume uh, based on height as opposed to weight, which has been shown to be to be beneficial from the ICU down in the emergency department. Uh, we've emphasized head of bed positioning to keep people uh, upright as opposed to supine. We've encouraged uh, PEEP and we've encouraged oxygen weaning if possible. Again, these are fairly simple things that we can do even in the truck uh, that don't 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 require an emergency department or an ICU. And again, trying to get these things get these things started on the patients as early as possible and try to turn down the, the inflammatory cascade that Nick's talked about has been our goal here. There's, there's some more, I guess, detailed facets that Nick and his team have, have added into to their bundle that are a little more emergency department ICU specific, but I think there are some simple things that even, even paramedics out on the street can think about when they put patients on a vent that can help us have you know, more positive patient outcomes, less ARDS, again, is the goal overall. Would, would you agree, Nick? Absolutely. I think that some of those things that you talked about are, are pretty simple things that are easy to overlook. But like a lot of things in pre-hospital care and in emergency medicine, just really focusing on basics in many cases uh, get us most of the way there to preventing that injury. So the second part of your, your, initial, your initial discussion that, that we've sort of stolen and really fallen in love with here at MCHD is the idea of therapeutic momentum. 
because I think it really p- applies to a lot of, you know, pre-hospital care. I think it's something that our paramedics can can grab onto and helps to solidify why we do the things we do, even in the short short time span. You talked about therapeutic momentum in relationship to vent settings and, and tidal volumes, and that's really the the thrust of this podcast. But what are some other areas in medicine, some simple examples you can give folks out there that kind of define what therapeutic momentum is and why it's important and why it extends even even to us out on the street? Yeah, it's a great question. So when we think of therapeutic momentum, we, we think of these things that seem uh, somewhat arbitrary in medicine, but where the decisions that you make either in the pre-hospital environment or in the emergency department or in the operating room carry over into the next phases of medicine that can last for hours to days. So one example of that might be antibiotic selection and dosing in the emergency department. You know, we have pretty good data that uh, if you select the wrong antibiotic or the wrong dose of an antibiotic in the emergency department, in many cases, that's going to be continued right or wrong. It doesn't mean that all the time that's what happens. It just means that that uh, once those decisions have been made, it's easy for that to move on to the next phase of care. Other times when we've seen this are diagnostic therapeutic momentum. So for instance, this has been shown in the pre-hospital environment, if a paramedic shows up in an emergency department and says, I think that this patient has sepsis. The probability that that patient gets a lactate within the first hour, the probability that that patient gets appropriate broad-spectrum antibiotics before three hours is higher than if they just show up and say, yeah, there's, uh, this is somebody who's kind of sick. And so um, you can imagine that there are, are situations where that pre-hospital determination might be right or it might be wrong, but it's something that sort of primes the way that emergency physicians who are taking that handoff might think. The same thing happens between the emergency department and and the intensive care unit. So uh, when we assign a diagnosis, even if that diagnosis turns out to be incorrect, in many cases, that's the diagnosis that follows a patient for the first day or two that they're in the hospital. And so um, I think that that encourages all of us, even who are going to be caring for patients for a relatively short portion of the entire care that they're going to need, that encourages all of us to really be uh, uh, to pay attention and to to really do our best at assigning the right diagnosis, starting the right therapy, uh, initiating that therapy early. Because if we do that, uh, in many cases, that's going to uh, going to carry through the first couple days of our patient's hospital stay. It might get them out of the hospital faster, improve their clinical outcomes. I think that it also uh, encourages all of us who are taking handoff to sort of check ourselves and say, you know, one source of bias that all of us are subject to is the bias of what the guy before us thought. So that's true during our handoffs. It's true during uh, shift change at all of these times where we would say, you know, that doesn't mean that we need to necessarily reevaluate everything or question everything that's been done, but we we have to sort of check ourselves and say, whatever was done before has probably primed me to think in a certain way about this patient. And in many cases, that's appropriate. And uh, when when we question that, maybe we need to step back and kind of look at things anew. I think we all know that those changeover times are, you know, patient care-wise, medical legally-wise, the most dangerous dangerous times that we're involved in care, whether that's from ED doc to ED doc, shift change, whether that's from delivery to the hospital, um, you know, paramedic to nurse to ED doc change, whether that's from the emergency department to the ICU. I mean, we know these are, are times where errors are increased, magnified, more likely. So I think uh, I would I would really echo that to to our MCHD listeners, especially when you are delivering a patient to the hospital, that initial report is really important. And the more clear that you can be 
and the more decisive that you can be, the less, you know, the less chance there's going to be of miscommunication, leaving out significant details and those sort of things. So I think that's a really, really important point, Nick. Let's, we, we've talked a lot about lung protective settings and tidal volume tends to get the majority of uh, the sort of the, the speaking time and in, in the press. And we've, we've converted from, again, a weight-based tidal volume to a height-based tidal volume here at MCHD. And if you want more details on that, I don't want to, I don't want to belabor that when it, we've discussed it in another, in another podcast, but there are other parts to lung protective ventilatory strategies. And anytime dogma exists, that's, that's false. I, I think it's important to to break those walls down. So tell us a little bit, a little bit, Nick, about some of your recent research looking at detrimental effects of hyperoxygenation. I think that we were all trained, you know, in chest pain. Mona, everybody with chest pain got hooked up to oxygen. We seem to think that 100% nasal cannula would cure what ailed you. And I think we're finding more and more in, across uh, multiple disease states from super sick ICU patients to maybe not so sick patients that this is just not, not the best idea. Tell us a little bit about your research and, and sort of your thoughts there on, on hyperoxygenation. Yeah, that's a good question, Casey. The, when we think about hyperoxygenation, really what we're talking about are people who are on a bunch of oxygen who don't need to be. There are patients who probably need a higher FiO2 than other patients, but um, just like you say, we used to think that this was perfect for everybody. I think what we're learning is that it's not. There were some nice cohort studies that were published over the last decade that have looked at patients after cardiac arrest, that have looked at traumatic brain injury patients, that have looked at other patient groups, and have suggested that, you know, if really achieving high FIO or high PO2, if that were really better for our patients, what we should be seeing is that those patients who have the highest PO2 have the best outcomes. And that clearly is not what we have observed. The studies where we looked, uh, where, you know, medicine looked at this early were diseases of reperfusion. So cardiac arrest being one, stroke being another, and now there's data in myocardial infarction where uh, people have said, you know, maybe achieving those really high PO2s uh, can contribute to the reperfusion injury. And that reperfusion injury leads to cell apoptosis and cell death and maybe poor outcomes, persistent multisystem organ dysfunction. We've looked at some of our data sets just looking at general emergency department patients who are ventilated after intubation. And we've shown kind of the same thing. It's an association that those patients who have the highest PO2 uh, have the worst outcome. And there's a really nice dose-response relationship. So we published a paper just this year looking at patients who have a PO2 of greater than 120 versus less than 120. And then uh, we identified a few cohorts, uh, a few strata higher than that. And we showed that the higher the PO2 was, the higher the mortality in those patients. Now, one question we might ask is why that could be the case. So in some of those patients, it might be reperfusion injury. We know that very high FiO2 uh, can contribute to direct lung toxicity and can be one of the things that can contribute to lung injury and multisystem organ dysfunction. But I think that right now what we know is that based on a number of well-done cohort studies, that that achieving really high PO2 with really high FiO2 probably doesn't help our patients, and in many cases it might hurt them. So from to take it to the to the paramedic on the street who doesn't have the ABG, you know, can't follow PA, PAO2 per se, how do, you, how do you teach your EMS folks to kind of address this problem? Because it's not quite as exact as if you're dealing with an ABG and you have serial ABGs that you can follow and you can, you know, tweak the vent settings. You know, we're in a situation where we may have the patient for a half an hour or 45 minutes and your really only resource is going to be your, your O2 SAT. How do you, how do you teach that? 
Yeah. So even in our emergency department and our intensive care unit, you know, what we tell people is after the tube goes in, allowing five minutes for recovery on high FiO2 is fine. But then after that, turn it down and get it down as low as you can safely go. And so how do you know? Well, you can follow the SAT, just like you mentioned. Um, we know that especially at very high oxygen saturation, if you're using a pulse ox, that you really, have, we have no idea what the PO2 is in those patients. So if you have a SAT of 100%, you could have a PO2 of 105, or you could have a PO2 of 250, or, or even four or 500. So um, once you get to those very high uh, oxygen saturations, you can't tell, but if you target an oxygen saturation down closer to, you know, 92%, you have a pretty good idea that you don't have a PO2 of 250, right? So what I tell our residents and medical students and, and paramedics in our setting is allow five minutes for recovery and then turn it down. So if you had a patient who was intubated for, who didn't have respiratory failure, just had a drug overdose or traumatic brain injury or something like that and should have no lung injury, then I encourage people to turn it down to 30 or 40%. Just, just out of the chute. Um, and the reason is because th that lung should have been normal. And unless I injured it while I was intubating them, it should still be normal. If the pulse ox starts to drop and you, know, you get down less than 90 to 92%, then you can start to turn it back up. But just turn it down quickly. If you have a patient who has pneumonia or pulmonary embolism or pulmonary edema or something like that, most of the benefit of intubation is not going to be from your FiO2. Most of it's going to be from increasing your mean airway pressure. And you're doing that usually through PEEP, through either a ventilator or through a PEEP valve. And then you can still turn it down. So um, uh, if you have somebody who is really hypoxic when you intubated them, you can turn it down slowly. But if you had somebody who had pretty normal lungs, just turn it down and kind of see what happens. You know, it's important that we're watching these patients. So don't set somebody on 30% FiO2 and then, you know, kind of, uh, leave them alone without paying attention to them. But you are, uh, you're in the rig with these patients watching the SAT and, uh, you know, you can titrate it based on that. You don't need a PO2 to be able to do it accurately. And if they drop to 90, this is, you know, this is not a, a, a locked door, right? You can, you can always turn around and turn it back up. And I think, Absolutely. And I think that sometimes is the, that leaving them at a hundred with a, with, with what ends up being a, you know, a PA, PO2 of 300 for that 20 minute ride where you, in the past you felt safe because, well, there's, that's a hundred. That's, that's, that's fine. No big deal. You know, I think the in net, net negative of, Oh, we dropped down to, you know, 90 and had to turn it up a little that tweak, even though that old, you know, in the, my old way of thinking, I would have been like, Oh man, I let him get a little hypoxic. It's probably a lot less detrimental and dangerous to the patient than that old safe feeling of just cranking it all the way up. So the number doesn't change and I don't have to think about it. And I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's one of the ways we try to teach our paramedics is that if you if you if you crank it down and you get a drop, just don't don't space out. Be be watching it. Pay attention. We do that already and just turn it back up. There's no reason why you can't walk back through that door. Like I said, um, that's exactly right. You know, the other thing that I would just reinforce is that that uh, gas exchange responds very, very quickly to changes in FiO2. That's not true for PEEP. It can take, you know, minutes to hours to see changes in uh, your gas exchange related to PEEP because we're talking about recruitment and de-recruitment. But when we're talking about the FiO2, those changes are very, very fast. All of you who've had patients who have been severely high 
hypoxemic. You know, there's nothing magic about 90 or 92 percent. In fact, most of our patients can make it down into the mid 80s before they're, you know, without breeding down and really having hemodynamic instability. And there are some of our patients who have chronic lung disease who live at a much lower F or PO2. So, um, I think that you're exactly right. Thinking about this, you know, 90 to 92 is just a really a very safe place to be. If you start to drift down to the 80s and you have to turn it up a little bit, that's not a, an adverse event. It's just something that happens and you're taking good care of your patient. So that, I think that leads us into, you mentioned uh, peat valve in, in the last answer. I think it brings us to a good, a good time to just sort of reinforce and discuss. I'm going to let you discuss a little bit. Here at MCHD, we're lucky we've got transport vents on our trucks. A lot of services, a lot of paramedics out there in other locations, more austere environments, even in some major metro areas, you know, we're not, we're not hooking these patients up to ventilators. So if you guys haven't already tuned out, a lot of these lung protective strategies are, you know, relevant and we have things that we can do even when we're transporting patients and bagging them. And I think that the, the idea of the, of the PEEP valve is one that, that's pretty important. Can you talk about some of the ways that when you talk to your paramedics who don't have vents, how you still emphasize some of these uh, strategies? Yeah. When we're talking about what tidal volume we should be targeting, you know, typically when we say we're targeting, you know, six milliliters per kilogram of ideal body weight, you're, you end up at a tidal volume of four to 600 in most patients. So in, in most of those patients, it's going to be really closer to 400. So if you're ventilating with 400 milliliters of air, if you think about the standard bag valve that you might use on your truck, it's pretty easy if you're working hard to get a liter out of that. So I tell people that, you know, when we're ventilating kids, what we tell people is that you should ventilate until you see some chest rise and not a whole lot more than that. And I think that that's pretty good practice with adults too. We've learned that uh, in many cases, especially with in patients with cardiac arrest or even after cardiac arrest, that high respiratory rates can really be deleterious because it increases the intrathoracic pressure and dec can decrease venous return and cardiac output. The same is true in all of our patients. So, you know, sometimes you have to work at it to bag somebody 10 to 15 times a minute with a tidal volume that uh, just allows you to see some chest rise or maybe just a little bit more than that. But that's kind of our target. The bag doesn't have to be empty at end exhalation. You just want to see some air movement. Um, and if you see some air movement and some fogging in the tube, I think that, uh, that you're probably doing the right thing. Those of you who have end tidal CO2 that you're monitoring, and many, uh, many pre-hospital services do now, that can give you some guidance too. So if you have an end tidal of greater than uh, 40, then it's probably okay to ventilate just a little bit faster than that. If your end tidal is very low, especially in patients who have diseased lungs, you really can't tell how to interpret that. But um, if you have patients who are hypercapnic, ventilating just a little bit uh, faster, but again, with small tidal volumes is the right thing to do and ventilate until you see some chest rise. That's excellent. I think that really helps to hammer home the fact that this is not just for patients who are mechanically ventilated with a, a ventilator, that mechanical ventilation can be your hand. And I think that all of us, based on the way that we were trained, bag a little bit slower and squeeze a little bit uh, less tightly than you're used to. You know, watch for that chest rise and a little fog in the tube, and that's really all that you need. I think I think that's a, that's great pointers out there that we all can can sort of take to heart because even even before you get them connected to the vent, if you have a vent out there, you're still going to be bagging for for some time period and there's no, you know, you don't have to flatten the bag. I mean, you're, like you said, it's pretty easy to get to a liter, uh, with a, with an Ambu bag an adult Ambu bag. And as we know, you know, 400 to 500 is going to be your target in most folks with a, 
with a uh, ideal body weight based calculation. So let's, uh, this has been really enlightening, Nick. And again, I really appreciate you joining us here. We're, uh, Nick's joining us remotely from Iowa. So uh, if you hear any little audio glitches out there, that's the, uh, the wonders of, of technology. But let's, let's close out with a peek into the future. What is the direction of the research that you guys are doing there at Iowa, uh, you know, across the, across the nation? What, where do you see this going, the, the concept of lung protective ventilatory strategies uh, in the next couple years? What, what, what kind of things do you see coming down the down the pipe? Yeah, that's a really good question. The, uh, you know, when we think about moving care that have traditional, has traditionally been focused in the intensive care unit earlier in the care of patients, I think that there are a few different interventions that we start to think about, lung protective ventilation being one. There's some really interesting work uh, in driving pressure, which is a kind of a new way of thinking about uh, why some patients develop lung injury as a consequence of mechanical ventilation. But um, when we start to think about other interventions, right now we're looking at sedation strategies. We have some data that uh, the depth of sedation in the emergency department is associated with long-term outcomes. That probably is from a combination of uh, therapeutic momentum and actually just uh, how deeply our patients are sedated and how that contributes to organic brain dysfunction in the hours to days after presentation in the hospital. We've also looked at uh, some strategies for preventing uh, iatrogenic infections that have traditionally been thought of uh, as being complications of critical care. But I think that what we're learning is that that care that's provided to patients in the first hour or six hours is really important care. We've known that for a long time for patients with severe sepsis and septic shock. Increasingly, I think that we're understanding that that's true for patients with stroke. It's true for patients uh, with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. It's probably true even for patients who have hypercapnic respiratory failure. So, um, as we continue to, to look at different strategies for ventilating patients and different ways to implement those strategies in the real world, those are some of the areas that we're kind of looking at in the future. Well, again, we really appreciate you joining us today, Nick. We will uh, link up, for the listeners out there, we'll link up uh, some of the references to the research that we talked about today, some of Nick's and some of the other more prominent studies we've seen over the past you know, five to 10 years supporting, supporting these lung protective strategies. Again, if you want more on lung protective vent stuff, you can scroll back to one of our earlier episodes. Um, please let us know. Uh, email us here at the podcast if you have any questions or concerns, anything you'd like us to talk about that we've uh, missed on, or any any other any other questions or ideas. Please please send those our way. Again, thanks to to Dr. Nick Moore for joining us uh, from up in Iowa, and we'll be talking to you guys again soon. Thanks. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, could be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.